Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. want to tell you about the only NPR show where you can hear about the latest White House drama and the return of TRL to MTV. The show is called It's Been a Minute. Every Friday, we catch up on the week of news and culture, everything. And every Tuesday, I sit down for some long interviews with authors, filmmakers, directors, and more. You can find It's Been a Minute on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you think about it, humor is kind of a weird device to use in pop music. I mean, it's kind of risky. If you lean in too heavy on a joke and your song becomes a novelty, nobody's going to take you seriously. And despite that, there's so many singers and bands who've managed to do that for decades. Artists like Randy Newman, The Roaches, Harry Nilsson, Sparks. It's kind of about balance. Behind all of those artists' best songs, there's humor. But there's also pathos. Jonathan Colton's a guy who's written funny music pretty much his entire life. Lately, I guess you can say he's been writing more serious, darker songs. And as he's done that, he started looking back on his earlier work, and it even surprised him. Some of his funniest songs are was sort of a bummer if you think about it. As I've gotten older and had to admit, had to go back and say, oh, when I wrote that song about that uh, self-loathing giant squid... That was that was actually me. A lot of those feelings were were my feelings, um, and as I because it's always it always comes as a, as a surprise. That's the weird thing. <laughs> I, you would think I would know because I'm writing it. We've all had that self-loathing giant squid experience. It's bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, Jonathan Colton talks to me about his new album, Solid State, the graphic novel he just released to accompany it, and the key to what makes a perfect piece of popular music. Uh, well, that's my favorite kind of song, is the one that you, is, has a funny candy shell, but is filled with a aching sadness. But first, I'll talk with Tim Gunn, co-star of Project Runway on Lifetime. He's been doing the show for 16 seasons now, one six. He'll tell me about how he keeps going, about what he learned from his upbringing about fashion. And watch out, here come the hot takes. Look at our president. Talk about semiotics, the man looks like an unmade bed. Where are the tailors in all of this? Yeah, that's right, topical humor with the word semiotics in it. It's public radio, folks. Finally, Comedy Central roasts can be kind of rote, I know, but... I'll tell you about one of my favorites. It's not even a roast, really. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is kind of a legend in the world of fashion television, Tim Gunn. You probably know him from Project Runway. You've seen Project Runway, right? It just started its 16th season last month, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of half hours. If shows like Top Chef and Iron Chef brought haute cuisine into American living rooms, Project Runway did the same with couture. Alongside host Heidi Klum, Tim's kind of a teacher and mentor on the show. He guides aspiring designers on their path to stardom. He's smart. He's compassionate. He's funny. He's also not afraid to give him a business every once in a while. I'm just going to be blunt. Okay. Oh, God. I'm mystified by this pant. I feel like it's a long john. 
What's with this? Oh, I love those. But they're so winter. This woman wearing these boots and those pants wouldn't remotely consider that top. Okay. You had me believing, loving, championing. Now I'm completely baffled and confused. Oh, no. To be blunt. Okay. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm baffled and confused. He won an Emmy for that job, but he's more than all that. He's got a brilliant mind for fashion. He taught design at Parsons for 25 years. He was the chair of the fashion department for five. He's got a big personality, but he's always supportive. He's always considered, and he is really, really thoughtful. Here's a little bit from the show's 10th season. You need to think about how to talk about this on the runway and explain how it could go into production. Rather than doing this in one seam, this can be a whole diagonal cut pattern. And let's say the material is only in one direction. And it's top stitched and slashed. And the pattern pieces, you know, go according to what... See? You're already spinning this. So it can be done. Is that too expensive? I wouldn't know. But it's a lot more affordable than this. But other than that... Sophisticated. I feel it has elegance. I think a woman would look fabulous in this. All right, I'm, I'm going to walk away happy. Me too. Thank All right. you. Thank you, Christopher. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Gunn, welcome to Bullseye, and congratulations on, uh, this is season 17 of Project Season Runway. 16, Jesse, 16, actually. okay. Thank 16, goodness. that's all right. We'll, we'll be here for 17, though. We already know that. Well, congratulations on the upcoming season 17, the current season 16, <laughs> and uh, congratulations on so graciously correcting my error. Um, no, no, it's a pleasure. <laughs> I can't believe season 16. I mean, I actually never thought we'd have a season two. Well, I mean, I think part of the story of Project Runway is you never thought that you were going to be an on-camera television professional, right? Well, that's very, very true. How did that end up happening? I was um, called in January of 2004 by two people I did not know, and they said that they were the producers of a new show called Project Runway, and that it was a reality show about fashion. And I was sitting in my office at Parsons School of Design. I was then chair of the Department of Fashion Design. And I said, this industry has enough trouble without a reality show. <laughs> and... I said, I, I mean, good luck to you, but quite frankly, I'm not interested in, in talking to you about um, where, the direction that the show could go in. Tim, I don't and, mean to cut you off here, but did, is that what you said inside of your head or is that what you said out of oh, your Oh, no, mouth? I said it. Okay. I said it. And they said, just give us 10 minutes. And I heard their names, and after we hung up, I Googled them, and I found out that they were the Project Greenlight producers. And I knew that, knew that Project Greenlight uh, had a lot of integrity and a real seriousness of purpose, and I thought, well, maybe this conversation won't be as bad as I think it will be. And when we did meet and they revealed that they wanted to work with real fashion designers, I, I – breathed a sigh of relief, I guess I should say, because I thought they were going to be picking people at random off the street saying, you, we'll make you into a fashion designer, or do you want to be a fashion designer? We'll do this for you. When you got to the set, and I don't think you had done a lot of television work before, how was it different from what you thought it would be? Well, actually, season one was relatively easy, other than any scene that required that I be with Heidi because my knees would shake so badly. I'd almost fall over. I was in such a, a nervous lather over being next to this 
absolutely stupendous looking supermodel. Um, but in the workroom itself, I was pretty comfortable, and I'll tell you why. I never dreamed I would be in the cut of the show. I was very aware of the camera placement, and I was also very aware of why I was in the workroom. No one ever said these words to me, but this is what I deduced. The producers were afraid that Heidi would present the challenge on the runway to the designers. She would send them to the workroom. They'd work, work, work. They'd come back with their designs on models, and it would be judged. But during that entire workroom session, which is roughly 10 to 12 hours of taping, well, actually, no, in the olden days, everything was a two-day challenge. So it was double that. It was, say, 20 hours of taping. The producers, I think, thought no one would talk, and they were probably right. So by sending me in, or someone like me, to probe and to, to, to query, they were assured of some dialogue about what the designers were actually doing. But I thought, no one needs to see me. No one needs to hear my voice. And I n- consequently never dreamed I would actually be in the cut of the show because I'm just so unnecessary. So when the first show premiered, or when season one premiered, um, I had never seen a uh, an advanced copy of, of the cut of the show, and I declined going to the premiere party because I thought, well, if I'm in the show, I have no idea what I'll actually look and sound like um, because it's rather surreal when, for the first time, you realize you're this, uh, I don't know, piece of ectoplasm or something that, that you don't even recognize. But and I thought if and if I'm not in the show, I'll be totally humiliated in front of the designers. So I watched the uh, first episode the way I used to watch The Wizard of Oz as a kid. I was under the covers of my bed and I would peek my head out occasionally just to test the waters. And also, I have to say this: I knew how much integrity we had in taping that first season of the show. I had no idea how the show would actually be cut, and I had no idea what went on in the apartments with the designers. I thought, who knows? This whole thing could be a bunch of sexual escapades. And thankfully, it wasn't. I know that your background was as an architect and sculptor, and I wonder how your interest in building... Um, three-dimensional forms informs your thinking about fashion. You know, Jesse, you're the first person to ever ask me that, and it's something I think about all the time. I think that they're inextricable. Um, And I say uh, with impunity that the two most closely related designed fields are architecture and fashion. You have an infrastructure, you have a skin, you have... Uh, ergonomics that are involved. Uh, there, there are just so many aspects that are so similar. And it's very much of, of uh, why I am so passionate about the creation of clothing. Um, it does go back to my many, many years of wanting to be an architect. Do you know why I, I stopped studying it? I don't. I, I mean, I still loved it and, and, and was still very passionate about it. It goes back to the olden days before computer technology. Um, in order to make a presentation drawing, we had to to take a, a stylus and and drop India ink. Um, I'm sorry, we had to drop India ink into the stylus and pull the stylus along a straight edge to create lines of the drawing. And these drawings could take 
dozens of hours. And if a line bled, you had to start all over again. It drove me to despair. And I also thought, because architecture professors are very belittling, in a manner of speaking, and, and they want you to be humbled. So midway through the semester, I thought, okay, what if I succeed? I graduate. I'm going to be doing plumbing and wiring specs for gas stations for the rest of my life. I'm not going to be the next Frank Lloyd Wright. I feel like architecture, because of the enormous engineering requirements, suggests forms that are relatively simple outside of the kind of filigree. But, you know, like I'm looking out the window of my office right now and uh, 80% of the buildings are composed almost exclusively of straight lines and 90 degree angles. Yes. And fashion has that same need to engineer. You're still creating a building, but it demands a responsiveness to a thing that is fundamentally curvilinear, I guess, which is bodies. Yes. So how is that different to make something three-dimensional for a curvy, swoopy shape out of muslin or canvas or silk rather than build straight lines out of bricks? Well, actually, I think it's, I think it's more challenging and more demanding. I think it's, it's, it's much more challenging and difficult to work with soft structures than it is to hammer and nail things. I would say to my fashion students, I don't care what you design as long as your model, your client, can get into a car wearing it, can get into a taxi. What I want to say about my time as a, as a three-dimensional design instructor, and I love those years, it was disarming for my students to learn that they were going to actually have to sew things. And what I would give them was, uh, as, as an example would be a fire hydrant. I want you to create a slip cover for a fire hydrant. So you have to understand the, the, the form. You have to understand this soft structure puzzle. And we would use muslin. Um, and there can be no zips, zippers or, or snaps. It, it provided this huge enhancement in how they look at everything from a spoon to a skirt to a skyscraper. And actually, many of the students ended up going into fashion, I think, partially because of that experience. You've been an advocate, uh, particularly recently, but for a long time as well, for fashion, for people who fall outside of the standard set of uh, fits, people who are big especially, which uh, a lot of people are. I wonder if you could explain why it is that off-the-rack clothing is so rarely made for people on any edge of the, the size and proportion spectrum. When I left Parsons um, to uh, be the chief creative officer at Liz Claiborne, Inc., at that point, Liz Claiborne had 48 brands, um, from Kate Spade to Lucky Brand Jeans to Dana Buckman. I mean, it was all over the place. And there were only... Well, actually, it was only the Liz Claiborne brand that addressed women who were larger than a size 12. So I went to the creative directors of, of most of the brands that you would call fashion, and I said, look, I want to talk to you about the neglected woman, the, the woman who is larger than a size 12 and of, of whom there are millions and millions. Why 
can you not address her? And across the board, I heard the exact same thing. And it was shocking and still is to me. And the response was the following. I don't want her wearing my clothes. Hmm. How atrocious is that? And what I love about this season 16 of Project Runway is that we're working with models who range in size from 2 to 22. And they all look fabulous. I mean, they're breathtaking. So... Shame on these designers who turn their backs on everyone over the, larger than a size 12 and double shame on the retailers. You only have money to earn. I mean, I fundamentally don't understand it. I just don't. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tim Gunn of Lifetime's Project Runway. The show just kicked off its 16th season. I want to ask you a question about your family, Tim. Your father was an FBI agent. Yes, for 26 um, and, years. And was a very uh, – was a successful and important FBI agent. His one Among his responsibilities were doing a- almost all of the writing for the director of the FBI, correspondence and speeches and books and the whole nine yards. Yes. In the Hoover era. Did he dress like an FBI agent, like a G-man? Well – I mean, I have an image of, of what that is, of, of how my father dressed, and, and uh, I, of course, knew his colleagues. What does what being dressed like a G-man mean to you, Jesse? Well, I think probably, I mean, obviously in a contemporary context, if you're an FBI agent, you're probably wearing like one of those vinyl windbreakers or something. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> that's probably true. I hadn't thought about that. You know what I'm talking yeah. about. But but yeah. what I'm imagining is basically like uh, a character on Dragnet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dad wore dark suits and and uh, and and ties and white shirts, and he had a trench coat. Yeah. You were uh, you're a, like a young baby boomer. You were born in the 50s. And yes. Were a teenager when the parts of the 60s that we think of as the 60s were happening. Indeed, I was. And a huge part of that culturally was rejecting the aesthetic values of the generation that went before. Um, a huge part of it was growing hair long and wearing blue jeans uh, when you didn't have to for work, wearing flowing more feminine clothes on men, like all these different things that were rejections of the idea of the literally the thing your father stood for <laughs> aesthetically yes. right the man in the gray flannel suit right and i wonder how you felt about that when you were a teenager cuz i know you were you know i know you were a bit of a mess as a teenager oh, trying I was to a figure stuff mess. out yeah. so but were you like to heck with that or did you just accept that I mean, I don't know that I've ever even said this to anyone before, but until I was unshackled and went off to college, I was dressed by my mother. She bought my clothes and put them in the closet, and they were there for the picking. And they were conservative, and there was nothing outrageous about them. But also, I was such an introvert. I was... um, so self-insulated from from people, and a lot of it had to do with a very debilitating stutter, which I still get when I'm very fatigued. So I, I didn't have a social group. I mean, I was certainly aware of what was going on, but I didn't aspire to 
anything other than peace of mind. You attempted suicide when you were a teenager and were institutionalized for a couple of years after that. Yes. This is an odd question about that, but what did you wear when you were institutionalized? Well, the clothes that my parents packed up and sent with me, just regular old clothes, khaki pants and button-down shirts. Did you have a social world? Yeah, eventually I did. Um, I um, made a second suicide attempt, and it was actually the first night that I was in in the hospital, um, the psychiatric hospital. And that is a huge no-no. No institution gets madder about someone making a suicide attempt right under their nose than a psychiatric hospital, but I did. Um, and it was plotted. I mean, I, I sewed all these pills into the hem of my bathrobe. I knew what – I mean, I plotted and planned to do this. Who wanted to go up to the psychiatric hospital? I didn't. So the corresponding effect was that I was put into their version of solitary confinement. It was called seclusion. Um, and I was in a seclusion cell, really, for seven months until a, a new doctor that I had said, release him. This is ridiculous. Um, and it was even in that cell, I would wear regular old clothes because I had to have, um, oh, a suicide prevention monitor. And, and, and it was another – there were other patients at the hospital who were on the road to recovery and, and would look after you during the day. Or not even look after you, just be there to make certain you're not going to hurt yourself. Why am I going off on this tangent? Oh, that even then, I wore normal clothes. We'll have more from Tim Gunn after a quick break. He'll tell me the best advice he's got about how to be a designer. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Helix, where one test can provide a lifetime of personal insights from nutrition and fitness to family planning and entertainment. At Helix.com, discover a marketplace of DNA-powered products and find out what your DNA can tell you. Helix, crack your code. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. When you're in the mood for some fun, check out the Ask Me Another podcast for games, trivia, and puzzles. Try your brain at poetry based on Star Trek. Play Two Truths and a Lie and test your knowledge of 90s comedy with guests Janine Garofalo and Lily Taylor. Ask Me Another is like trivia night, but a lot funnier. Play along now on the NPR One app or wherever you find your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Tim Gunn. He's the co-host of Project Runway on Lifetime. It's just starting its 16th season. He and host Heidi Klum also just earned their fifth Emmy nomination for the show. This won't be news to you, but fashion sits in an interesting place in the continuum of art and design in that creating fashion, especially runway fashion, is about solving some design problems because there are aesthetic expectations. There are expectations to some version of beauty, usually. There are practical considerations and expectations. The idea of can someone get into a taxi cab while wearing this. And there are these kind of cultural problems that you have to solve, which are, you know, how does this fit in with uh, fashion as a, you know, as a social expression? 
And then there is also individual self-expression. And I wonder when you're working with young people who are just approaching this world, how do you teach them? How do you show them how to manage those needs when they're in competition? I mean, the easy thing to say would either be, look, let's figure out how to make something that sells or, look, let's make an art piece that expresses something that you need to express. But to do some mixture of both seems really scary and hard to me. I believe that to be successful in in the fashion industry, I mean, certainly as, as a designer, you have to have a point of view. And as a teacher and as a mentor, I can't give you that point of view. I think far too often, young people in particular struggle with this identity as a designer because they think it has to be something that's grand and 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 earth-shattering and and the whole world has been waiting for this moment to happen but in fact we know from having more, you and you and I that is Jesse but we know from having more experience in the world that we're constantly evolving there's 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 a constant growth factor if in fact you're really assimilating your society and culture which is what a good designer will do so it's about being true to who you are and I let the more practical aspect of this come later because I think it can be very constraining. I, and I'm not saying one should disregard it as much as I don't know that it's a critical factor in the earlier stages of growth. Um, a dear pal of mine is uh, the former editor-in-chief of Vogue, Grace Mirabella. And Grace would come in and meet with the new students in the fashion department every year as long as I was chair. And I would. she knew what she was expected to do. She was expected to do her grace thing. She would say to them, look, the world always needs something new. Fashion should constantly be changing and evolving, and it needs you. However, I have two pieces of advice. Don't make dumb clothes and don't make jokes. So they would look at each other, and then Grace would pause and explain, dumb clothes. The world doesn't need you to design a T-shirt. There are plenty of them out there, and it's a cookie cutter. Don't do that. Jokes, she said. And, and she had her own particular point of view about this. But she would cite the Paris Couture shows. She would say, you know, that's a whole other extreme. So you have the T-shirt at one end and you have a float and a parade at the other. She said, the world needs you to design between those two bookends. And it's extremely difficult to do. How do you make beautiful, innovative, creative clothing that is wearable. It's extremely challenging, it's, and it's why when we see it, we know something spectacular has happened, because for the most part, we're surrounded by a bunch of dumb clothes. Well, Tim, I, I, am, I sure appreciate you uh, giving us this time uh, to talk. I, I, I thank you very much for, uh, for doing it and for your work as well. Well, Jesse, I've loved every second of this. It's been a, a great deal of pleasure and a great... Um, just, it's been wonderful to be in conversation with you. Tim Gunn. The 16th season of Project Runway is on Lifetime now. Make sure to catch it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, an old favorite here on Bullseye, Jonathan Colton. 
A dozen years ago, he was a programmer. And one day, he decided to quit his job and take up music full time. He started maybe one of the most ambitious songwriting projects ever. Every week for a year, he'd write, record, and release a new song. He called it Thing a Week. It was a huge hit. And when the novelty of a guy writing 52 songs in a year wore off, people realized that a lot of the work he did was actually great, catchy, compelling, genuinely funny. He wrote songs like Code Monkey and Re Your Brains, even at perhaps his creative low ebb, an acoustic cover of Baby Got Back that ended up getting ripped off on Glee. There's always been an underlying sadness, sense of tragedy, in some of his music. But in the last few years, that has come to the foreground. It's a little less Weird Al, a little more Randy Newman, maybe. His latest album came out earlier this summer. It's called Solid State. It's kind of a dystopian concept album about the future of the Internet, about social media, about pictures of cats. He also just put out a companion graphic novel book with the same title. But it might not be the kind of music you expect when I say the phrase dystopian concept album about the future of the Internet and social media. Let's take a listen to a song from the record. It's called All This Time. So long since anyone has seen Out past the edge of our zone One of the friendlier machines Says I should leave it alone But I wonder anyway About some things I shouldn't say What if Kurt's wild doesn't make it What if all the switches get stuck on destroyed When the shuttle goes, we won't take it Final countermeasures are deployed. All will have all this time. All will have all this time. All this time. Jonathan Colton, welcome back to Bullseye. It's good to see you, pal. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Congratulations on the softest rocking sci-fi concept album ever recorded <laughs> thank you very much i know usually sci-fi concept albums rock a l just a little bit harder i did i think i heard one electric guitar solo in there at, at one point <laughs> there's a couple there's a couple there's a couple of, there's a couple uh there's there's one really rocking one but yeah it's you know me i'm a i'm a softy that's absolutely the case how did you stumble into making a concept record well you know i i as always, I when I was when I decided it was time to work on a new record, I just started writing songs, the things that I was interested in, and the first few that I wrote, I realized had a bit of a theme, and the theme seemed to be the internet sucks now, um, which is a little off-brand for me. <laughs> so I wasn't I wasn't sure quite what to do with that, but you know I kind of went with it and kept kept writing about it and it felt like a you know the more I thought about it the more I realized yeah that is this is kind of true I do have this I have become sort of disenchanted with a lot of things about the internet in a way that uh, I used to feel extremely positive I now have a lot of negative feelings negative feelings about it and so uh, I followed that for a while and then at some point um, I was working with uh, my producer's a guy named 
uh, Christian Kassan, who uh, uh, was my drummer in the last few tours that I did. And uh, it was just me and him working on stuff. And he, I had written this song called Solid State. And he suggested that we do a reprise of it later in the record. And once, once that was there, it was kind of like, all right, well, what's in between? And why are we reprising? And what are the questions we're asking and answering over the course of the record? And then I, I, I really did sit down with a, a bunch of pieces of paper with the song titles on them. And they were color-coded with the kind of tempo and whether they were up or down or happy or sad and what characters I thought might be speaking. And I, I kind of arranged things until I had a bit of a, a story arc. And then I filled in the gaps with a few more songs. And so it was kind of an accidental. I sort of backed into it accidentally. Is the Internet worse now or are you older than you used to be? I think probably both are true. <laughs> I mean, I guess literally speaking, you're definitely older than you <laughs> used to be. I'm definitely older, but that certainly is affecting how I experience the Internet. I mean, I'm of, of an age where there was no Internet, and then there was in my life. I think that's very different from people who grow up with it. And certainly I have a different perspective on it. Uh, and, yeah, no, I'm an old person. I feel that, I feel that more and more that there's a, there's a distance between me and people who are a couple of decades younger than me in terms of uh, how we experience the world. But I, I do think the the Internet was supposed to, uh, I mean, the way I always thought of it, it was going to save us. It was going to connect us in these really powerful ways and it was going to free us from capitalism and, uh, and the middleman. And we were going to, all the creators were going to be able to make their things and publish them and distribute them themselves. And uh, we were going to have a new level of understanding as we, connected with people who weren't like us, who were different from us around the world. Uh, and some of that happened. But then, you know, I think that was a short-lived, false, utopian vision. And then suddenly everybody was on the Internet, and now we're all just yelling at each other. And we're still the same uh, nasty, uh, frightened people that we were before there was an Internet. It's just that now we all have these giant megaphones and this, this sense that the person that we're screaming at, in all caps, is not a real person somehow. So, you know, I think, I don't know. I think we have some, I feel like we have some growing up to do. And I feel like the, one of the things that's happening is that the internet is demonstrating to us the areas in which we need to grow up and get better. In the graphic novel of Solid State, which you kind of outlined, and then the comic writer Matt Fraction wrote, one of the things that is going on in the near future dystopia that mm -hmm. we see mm -hmm. is the building of walls. And it seems like that is one of the things that the generation of idealistic internet creators did not realize was going to be so central to the internet, that Facebook, for example, would be so deeply invested in making a product that keeps people within its walls. Yeah. Well, I think there's always been that that tension. Um, and I think that is one of the things that has really changed about the Internet is that it was such a wild west when people were first experimenting with how to use that medium. There weren't a lot of walls. You could go anywhere. And it was kind of thrilling and exciting. And you really were making these random connections with other people and with other ideas. And then, you know, I remember the days of um, 
AOL, which stands for America Online, mm-hmm. uh, which is an old internet company. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the first ways. Well, they were more of a compact disk read-only memory <laughs> That's right. manufacturer. <laughs> That's right. They were, you, you, in, you know, in the early days, that was, for many people, the only way that they could get online, or the easiest way they could get online, you know, is through AOL. And uh, I remember at that time that all of the internet purists, all of the idealists were saying, well, this is just a walled garden. This is not the internet. It's the fake internet. It's like this safe uh, place that's uh, it protects you and it, it sort of gives you the things that it thinks you want. And uh, that's not what the internet is. And now, you know, you look at almost every successful internet company and that's what it does. It's, it has a, it's a wall. You know, Facebook is AOL. <laughs> it's, the, it's just a more efficient uh, AOL, I think. And, but it is still this walled garden and it still sets up these systems by which you can, you can stay, stay safe in your area of interests and uh, stay safe with the, the people that you are immediately connected to. And, uh, and yeah, so, and I think there still is that tension of wanting to, the internet works best when there aren't any walls, except if you're trying to make money off of it, in which case you want as many walls as possible. I mean, I think pursuant to your interests as a songwriter, historically speaking, Mm -hmm. one of the interesting things about the internet economy in the 21st century is that it is so focused on managing through software emotion. (laughs) And that's one of the things that we see in the in the comic, especially. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's very true. And it's all you know, it all comes down to you know, eventually to monetization and to and to getting people to participate in a certain way. I mean, you know, the in the comic there's a there's a sort of thumbs up and thumbs down mechanism in this dystopia that everybody uses in real time for the people all around them, which is kind of like, you know, what what would happen if you took Facebook likes and made them part of the the real world always. And it's a kind of terrifying, awful idea. But uh you know, I've had this reaction to these things, you know, just thinking about my own experience on, say, Instagram. I got into the habit of, you know, liking certain photos and deciding to not like other photos. And then I started to really think, like, why am I not liking these other ones? Because these people are my friends, too. And don't I want to help them? But I can't just like everything because that's the same as liking nothing. And then I realized that I was thinking so much about it, about doing this thing that I... <laughs> I have no personal interest. It's this company that wants me to do it so that they can create more engagement, so that they can create more ads. And then I was like, why am I working for Instagram? Uh, so now I don't like anything, which is a weird <laughs> sentence to say. <laughs> but on Instagram, I, d- I just stopped doing it because it's like it's, it, it's, a, it's a weird, meaningless thing. And the fact that it is like, like, <laughs> just, yeah. just that word. Your career was transformed, I mean, created in part by virality. Indeed. You had a project where you wrote a song a week every for a year. That's right. Many of your most successful songs, the ones that made your name and earned your first fans, were songs that had those qualities of viral humor, which they were like surprising and affirmed identi- people's identities in an interesting way, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And I don't, I don't know that that was your intent with them. It may have been sometimes, especially when you're writing a song a week, right? Well, I mean, um, <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like this, this, this week, if, if I've got a cute idea, then I'm writing a cute song because I'm not waiting for the... No. 
So do you feel complicit in that economy for that reason, that that is the thing that created your career in large part? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I think that um, when I when I first started doing that, I, you know, I didn't expect much success. And I had a couple of things that had that viral hit factor early on. And I mean, you know, it's a really addictive thing when you are, especially when you're doing this creative project and you want people to hear about it and you want more and more listeners and more and more fans. Anytime you do a thing that has that kind of viral success, you're like, well, geez, let's do that again because that felt great. It felt like I was doing my job. It felt like I was being loved by these people that I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, it's a really good thing for the for the ego and for the hopefully for the bottom line as you look at the <laughs> look look around at your family who's hoping that you can make money. Well, I mean, on that note, uh, I I'm going to ask you to play a song from that that you wrote in those first few years of your career. Yeah. Um and you wrote some genuine novelty songs in those days, not a ton of them, but uh you know, often I think when you perform one of your funnier songs, the new audience is there to laugh at it and enjoy the novelty of it. Mm-hmm. And the old audience is there to share an emotional connection with the underlying tragedy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's my favorite kind of song is the one that you, is, has a funny candy shell but is filled with a aching sadness. Well, let's take a listen. This is my guest, Jonathan Colton. He's going to sing his song, Shop Vac. Took the freeway out of town Found a place to settle down Got a driver and a swing set and a dog Got your very own bathroom Got my very own workshop in the basement We sit around staring at the wall to wall Take field trips to our favorite mall Waiting for the day when all the kids grow up And leave us here If you need me, I'll be downstairs with the shop vac You can call but I probably won't hear you Because it's loud with the shop vac on You'll be okay, cause you'll be upstairs with the TV You can cry and I probably won't hear you Because it's loud with the shop back on We hung a flag above the door Checked out the gourmet grocery store Got a mower I can ride around the yard But we haven't got real friends and now even the fake ones have stopped calling Maybe if you forget to hide the keys I'll take a ride to Applebee's Come home drunk on daiquiris And throw up on the neighbor's lawn If you need me, I'll be downstairs with the shop back You can come, but I probably won't hear you Because it's loud with the shop back on You'll be okay, cause you'll be upstairs with the TV You can cry and I probably won't hear you Because it's loud with the shop back on I like the Starbucks here, that's better than the other one The 
Cause the other one's not as good They really need to put a light there Cause it's hard to turn It's hard to make a left turn When it's time to go to bed I'm still awake inside my head Floating up above the house and looking down Guess I gotta go back there Guess there never was any other answer And as the freeway hums, the cars go by The headlights roll across the sky Many miles away and I can see them speeding through the dark If you need me, I'll be downstairs with the shop back You can call but I probably won't hear you Because it's loud with the shop back on You'll be okay, cause you'll be upstairs with the TV You can cry and I probably won't hear you Because it's loud with the shop back on We'll have more with Jonathan Colton after a quick break And he'll play maybe one of his sweetest love songs ever It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Amazon Publishing and Kimberly Ray Miller's new memoir, Beautiful Bodies. This New York Post's must-read book is a brave and witty examination of how and why we try to control our bodies with food. Miller takes readers through social history on a search for an objective definition of the elusive ideal body. Bullseye listeners are invited to enjoy a special discount on the book by visiting Amazon.com slash Beautiful Bodies Podcast. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the singer Jonathan Colton. His new album, Solid State, is out now. You have also, through the past 10 years of your career, been on essentially a committed mission to move towards sincere, uncloaked emotion in your songs. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. You know, I, um, as you say, the earlier work, I think, is has many layers of irony to it and ways of protecting me, Jonathan Colton, from copping to the emotions that I actually feel by grafting them onto other characters and by creating these unreliable narrators who are protected even from themselves, from their own feelings. You know, I mean, I think that's a really useful songwriting tool. And for me, that's the, I love, I love those kinds of songs where you're, you're, they do have these layers and you're, you're getting at the truth and of who this person is and how they're feeling in this subterranean secret way. It's a very exciting intellectual exercise. But, you know, I, as I've gotten older and had to admit, had to go back and say, oh, when I wrote that song about that self-loathing giant squid that was that was actually me a lot of those feelings were were my feelings because it's always it always comes as a, as a surprise that's the weird thing <laughs> I, you would think i would know because i'm writing it but yeah. i don't i only find out later that it, there it was about me in this way you know you would think i would understand the mechanism a little better especially after it had happened a few times and it's true i've gotten i've gotten less funny as the years have worn on and um you know there aren't really any any funny songs on this record i think there are a couple of funny lines but they're they're darkly darkly funny do you want to sing a sincere song from the new album solid state i do i would very much like to um this is a song uh when my wife was a young person she got a tattoo just over her left shoulder 
and it was some flowers and some vines. And it was this sort of spontaneous thing. She always wanted to have gotten a tattoo, but it wasn't a particularly <laughs> meaningful. She went to the thing and looked through the book and picked it out and put it on. And when I first met her and saw that tattoo, I asked her about the tattoo, and she said, ugh, you know, I've never really liked that tattoo. I regretted it almost immediately. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's just the idea of a tattoo. And when she turned 40, she wanted to mark the occasion by getting a new tattoo. So she went to the tattoo parlor, and she had them tattoo quotes around that tattoo. So, so it now it is a tattoo of the idea of a tattoo, and it sort of feels much more correct. And uh, I just love that uh, that idea of taking an old thing that is maybe a mistake and sort of massaging it and incorporating it in, in a way that works. Uh, so this is called this is called your tattoo. Black and blue, every time I lean into you You think the words don't mean what they do Killing me so slow So it's home instead Memorize your scars in the bed Making me see stars in my head Baby, you don't know One rough summer and too much sun the lines get blurry and the colors run And the red bleeds out with the blue A picture in the shape of the way it hurt Planning an escape from beneath your shirt Do you know I love your tattoo? Your tattoo Your tattoo You were there Little sparks and wire in the air Everything on fire everywhere Punishment and crime It's black and white Keeping me up late every night Thinking I can't wait But I might Everything in time Gray gives way to the deepest black Promises you made and can't take back When you look too long You see through Over on the edge where the ink is thin Coming in close against your skin Do you know I love Your tattoo Your tattoo Your tattoo Jonathan Colton uh, singing a song from his new album, Solid State, on Bullseye. My dad used to tell me stories about his career, which for decades was in the veterans' peace movement. And for a time, the group that he helped start were, they were number two on the FBI's list of domestic threats to national security. Fantastic. 
a tip of the hat to the Black Panthers for mm-hmm. locking down number one. But Always number one. For a minute, they were number two. So their phone calls would be monitored. Mm-hmm. And the technology for monitoring the phone calls was imperfect. So they would talk to the people that were monitoring their phone calls sometimes when they noticed them on the line because you could hear them click into the line. Hey, Tom. Like, yeah, exactly. And they could see the guys who had taken, you know, the FBI guys who were... Up on a telephone pole in a suit. Yeah, literally. So he was like, yeah, like they would move in across the street. Sure. And we would all go wave at them. Yeah, sure. One of the things that I've taken away from my dad's career in this work that was a thousand times more treacherous and intense than this work that I've chosen is that sometimes when those things are very treacherous, the most appropriate thing to do is goof around a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really essential. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's important to, to tell jokes in this time, in this, in these difficult times, but boy, it's hard. (laughs) You know, I, I, I have great respect for anybody who is continuing to make any sort of efforts to do creative work because it's got it's gotten pretty hard you have a song on the album solid state which is also a sequence in the graphic novel called pictures of cats yeah (laughs) do you think that pictures of cats are a blessed respite from the problems of the world or do you think they're the narcotic of the people (laughs) can it be both (laughs) Uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, I wrote that song, uh, the day that Robin Williams died. I had actually gone away on a little songwriting retreat because I was working on songs for this album. And the first day was the day that, uh, Robin Williams died. And, you know, I was doing what I always do in these situations, which is I was checking Twitter constantly. You know, there was some question as to whether or not it was a suicide and, you know, a bunch of think pieces about, uh, depression and about his depression and, I was very sad about it, and I was reading a lot about it, and I was really focused on it. And, I, and that's when I said, you know, I don't have to know every piece of information about this right now. And I don't have to read everything, every RIP tweet that people write. I thought a lot about something that Sean Nelson, the singer from Harvey Danger, said after one of these tragedies on Twitter. He said, you know, you don't have to say anything. And I thought that was really interesting and instructive. Uh, so yeah, I wrote that song about this idea that you you, the tendency is to really dig in to the thing on the internet that is hurting you. But sometimes you got to remember that you could just go to another place and look at pictures of cats for a while, and I think that's okay. Well, Jonathan Golden, I always appreciate you uh, being on the show. So thank you very much for coming and singing and talking. Thank you so much for having me, Jesse. Jonathan Colton. His new album is called Solid State. It's also a graphic novel of the same name. It is out now, and it is spectacularly beautiful. Let's listen to one more song from the album, the one we were just talking about, actually. It's called Pictures of Cats. All in once, it fills up my feet. More bad news that I didn't need. I can't stop reading, but I wish that I didn't know. Still too soon, there's not much to say They don't know, we're talking away All of the pieces and none of the places they go 
Every week, we like to wrap things up on Bullseye with a recommendation from me. It's called The Outshot. Have you ever watched a Comedy Central roast? Sort of a weird exercise. You have a bunch of comedians the license to say anything, and then you ask them to basically just say the meanest jokes they can think of, usually about some B-list celebrity that they don't care about. It can be funny, but personally, for me, it gets old pretty fast. I mean, with all due respect to both of them, I don't really care what Susie Essman thinks about Flava Flav. But there was one time when it was perfect. It was the time they roasted Bob Saget. And after an evening of this... I was actually offered a role on Full House. I turned it down because I wanted to focus on comedy. <laughs> I'm glad I got out of sitcoms before you killed them. And this... Full House should have been called Blackjack because you hit on the Olsons when they were eight and you didn't stop till they were 21. <laughs> Is it true that you used to give Mary Kate acting lessons? He'd tell her, act like this never happened. Norm MacDonald walked on stage and started doing this. Now, but Bob has a beautiful face like a flower. Yeah, cauliflower. <laughs> No offense, but your face looks like a cauliflower. Norm MacDonald's comedy often trades subtlety for almost absurd plainness. And the plainness can sometimes seem mean. I mean, there was that one time he hosted the ESPY Awards and he nearly got run off the stage for picking on Michael Jordan. Of course, the biggest story in basketball, no question about it, Michael Jordan may retire. Michael Jordan may retire after this season, and it's terrible news for Bull fans, you know. But it is terrific news for golf hustlers. <laughs> They're happy about it. But Jordan is very serious, though, about leaving. In fact, he's already called the Hall of Fame to make sure that his plaque bears his basketball nickname, Air Jordan, and not his baseball nickname, Senior Crappy. <laughs> That would just be disrespectful, you know? But Norm is good friends with Bob Saget, and so he took his plainness and kind of turned it around. He stood on the dais on national television with a stack of note cards, and for nearly 10 minutes, he just told jokes out of joke books. No, there are times when Bob has something on his mind when he wears a hat. <laughs> With no thoughts at all, just a hat. I'm talking about the kind of jokes you would get out of like a guidebook to humorous public speaking published by a local Lions Club. 
And Bob is not very worldly. He thinks the English Channel is a British TV station and not a body of water separating England and France. As the realization rolled across the stage that Norm MacDonald would be doing this the entire time he was up there, the comics, who were all, you know, seated around him, started to lose it. I mean, I am talking about almost falling on the floor, literally, crying, tears rolling from their eyes. Saget bent over at the waist on his feet. And the audience in the hall was, I mean, assuming the Comedy Central didn't sweeten the laugh track, the audience was, uh, they were fine with it. And Bob isn't the biggest sports fan. I don't think I'm telling any uh, tales out of school. I took him to a, I took him to a ball game, and he came toting a double-barreled shotgun. Do you remember that? I said, "What the H is that for?" Bob said, "I heard the Lions were playing the Tigers." Do you remember that? Yeah. It was a virtuosic performance, outclassed anything that Jeff Ross or Dave Attell or any of the other brilliant joke writers on stage could have managed. An insane farce, a straight-faced endurance contest, an inversion of the very premise of a roast, one of the most amazing comedy performances I've ever seen. Bob, you have a lot of well-wishers here tonight, and a lot of them would like to throw you down one, a well. They want to murder you in a well. <laughs> Seems a little harsh, but... Apparently they want to murder you in a well. It says here on this card. We should all have a friend like Norm MacDonald. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. If you notice a stench coming off our show this week, it's not our fault. They just put down some fertilizer there in the park. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He also maintains the spyglass on the comings and goings in MacArthur Park. He had help from Christian Duenas and our producer Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow here at MaximumFun.org is Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by them and their label, which is called Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free at MaximumFun.org via podcast or on our YouTube channel. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We're sharing interviews, giving you sneak previews of upcoming Bullseye guests, sharing funny, dumb stuff from the Internet and news you can use about the worlds of arts and culture. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.